You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 2nd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The EU visits Ukraine, but will Ukraine be coming to the EU? Russia decides it might as well go all in on the Stalin revisionism, and Australia commits Lay's Majest on a $5 note. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Carol Walker and Stephen DL will discuss all the day's big stories. And Monocle's Chris Chermak will look at how much Germany's allies actually want it to become a proper military power. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Stephen Diel, the writer and Russia analyst, and by Carol Walker, political commentator and Times radio presenter. Hello to you both. Good evening. Very good evening to you. Um, Carol, first of all, it has been ages since you last sat in this chair and contributed to this programme. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I'm not sure if I should really even be mentioning this on your programme, Andrew. Your, but your work at an inferior network. I uh, have uh, another... <laughs> I now work for Times Radio, which was uh, launched uh, two and a half years ago, and I have an evening show on there chatting through a lot of the sorts of issues that you're talking about, Andrew. And I've written a book, um, Lobby Life, Inside Westminster's Secret Society. It is about the lobby at Westminster, which is a club, an institution uh, with a great history, and it is the fulcrum between political journalists and political representatives down Street, the, their opponents, and uh, yeah, available to everyone who might like to have a listen. Just find out a little bit more about how that battle between the politicians and the media plays out and its history as well. Uh, and Stephen, you have sort of not one but two books imminent. Sort of, sort of, yes. Um, I've been sort of rather keeping my head down and not travelling a great deal, and having thought, well after the war started in Ukraine, who on earth is going to want any books translated from Russian, uh, which is what I've been, been doing in recent years. Suddenly, it was the London bus syndrome. You wait for ages and two come <laughs> at once. Um, and so, first of all, I translated a book by Mikhail Horokovsky, um, formerly Russia's richest man, um, called How Do You Slay the Dragon? Uh, a look at Russia post-Putin, which Whatever's going on now, there will be a period post-Putin. Mm. Um, and that's sooner available. Sooner rather than later, we hope. <laughs> we do indeed hope sooner rather than later. Um, but uh, that's available online. Um, and then uh, Sergei Medvedev, whose book, The Return of the Russian Leviathan, I translated in 2019, which is still well worth reading, um, has written a book called uh, A War Made in Russia. Um, and we're just haggling with the, um, the, the publishers at the moment to try and get them to get it out as quickly as possible because it's rather relevant. Well, indeed so. And it's kind of relevant to a lot of what we will be talking about tonight. And we are going to start in Kiev, which is presently hosting European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell, among other panjandrums. Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shmihal laid out his country's agenda. Ukraine hopes to join the EU within two years. The response from the EU appears to be along the lines of steady on there. EU accession is not a swift process in the best of circumstances. The most 
recent new member, relatively trouble-free Croatia, was admitted in 2013 after a 10-year wait. Ukraine's neighbour, broadly functional Poland, was in the queue for 20 years before joining in 2004. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke at a joint press conference with EC President Ursula von der Leyen, who at least gave Ukraine points for ambition. You continue to make impressive progress to meet the seven steps of the Commission's opinion. I'm comforted to see that your anti-corruption bodies are on alert and effective in detecting corruption cases. I also commend you on reacting so rapidly at the political level to make sure that the fight against corruption is delivering tangible results and is, is further stepped up. And while Ukraine advances on the European path, we are tearing down barriers between our economies and societies even further. Today we are proposing to Ukraine to join key European programs. This will give Ukraine benefits close to those of EU membership in many areas. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen speaking in Kiev earlier. Uh, Stephen, first of all, Ukraine is presumably not entirely serious about the two years thing. That was just them stressing their extreme keenness, wasn't it? It was, absolutely. Um, And they know that. And, of course, the European Union representatives know that. And really, the European representatives are there, European Union reps, to show their support for Ukraine in the war. I mean, that's really what this is about. But, you know, it's very unusual if you think about it, you know, in, in, in the midst of a war to, for so many uh, foreigners to come in and, and hold a, such a meeting in the, the capital city. So it's a, that's a great gesture of support. And in all honesty, that's what Ukraine knows, that, that that's as, as much as they can get for now. Obviously, Ukraine is, is using every conversation it can to say thanks for the tanks that you're sending but now we want aircraft so they will keep pushing that that message but I thought it was very interesting um, hearing uh, Ursula von der Leyen there talking about corruption because this has been a big elephant in the room Mm. Um, for a while now. We know before the war uh, there were a lot of accusations of corruption against um, Zelensky's uh, administration. It's something he hadn't really dealt with. Ironically, if you go back and it's available um, online, you can find the television series that Zelensky made when he, as Indeed playing so. the role of president. And the cor- the corruption really comes out in that, and not just in a jokey way. I remember there's one episode where um, one of the nastier characters, actually, who they've sprung from prison and gets blown up in a car as, he, as he's leaving. Spoiler alert, I perhaps would have said. But, <laughs> um, uh, so that that really is a big issue. And... I don't think it's coincidence that a couple of weeks before this summit, uh, the the first moves have been made to remove well, people. A, a quite spectacular purge of some deputy ministers and other officials. Um, that's more signalling, Carol, from Ukraine about how we very much want to do this. And there has been an idea vaguely floated in some quarters over the last year that maybe it would be expedient for the EU to let a few of its standards slide a little bit in order to expedite Ukraine's accession, but that would presumably lead to, rather, among other consequences, everybody else on the waiting list losing their actual minds. Yes, I think the European Union are trying very hard to demonstrate symbolically as much as they can their support for Ukraine. As Stephen was saying, taking this summit 
right to the war zone, whilst at the same time just quietly reminding everyone, well, we do have these rules and regulations and this accession process and the average time it takes to join uh, is nine years Mm. and you have to fulfil 35 different chapters which are on everything from uh, the economy. Corruption, as Stephen was talking about, is an important one. The rule of law, the judicial system and so on. And some of those Eastern European nations have been much keener to be a bit more lenient towards Ukraine for the sake of opening their mm. arms and showing their full support. Whereas countries like France and Germany, which, of course, were at the uh, at the forefront of, of the forging of the European Union, are perhaps more aware of the dangers that, yes, if they bend the rules a bit for Ukraine, well, then other countries like Moldova will be saying, well, if you could do it for them, let's mm. do it for us. And then, of course... There are potential financial consequences for the bloc as well, because there are those rules about debt. Ukraine clearly is a country, parts of which are absolutely in ruins. And and there will be an awareness of uh, the, the, the consequences, financial as well as in defence and security terms, if and when Ukraine does ever join the bloc. Well, on the subject of defence and security, Stephen, another bloc that Ukraine is obviously very keen on joining is NATO. But there's a, the impediments are not necessarily entirely the same to that, but there is one big overlapping problem, which is that quite a lot of Ukraine, an area in fact somewhat larger than Denmark, is presently occupied by an enemy, and neither the EU or NATO, uh, however sympathetic they are to Ukraine, is going to buy that kind of trouble, are they? No, they're not. And the term frozen conflict comes up as well. Mm. If, if the Russians are not driven out of Ukraine, uh, and that means out of Crimea, out of the whole of eastern Ukraine, then that will be termed a frozen conflict because the West does not recognize Russia holding Crimea or any parts of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine's borders were decided in 1991. Russia signed an agreement to that effect as well in 1994. So anything they've done since to take territory away is illegal on the international stage. And so if there's a frozen conflict, that automatically, uh, under NATO's rules, that, that rules out a country from joining NATO. NATO will wait until the frozen conflict thaws, i.e., in this case, the, the Russians are completely expelled from uh, from Ukraine before they can really even have serious conversations about Ukraine joining NATO. So, Carol, just finally on this, is, is it probably more sensible to interpret this visit and also to assume that everybody involved in this visit well understands that this is... This is basically symbolic. This is, as we approach the anniversary of Russia's invasion, this is the EU at its most senior level saying, we haven't forgotten about you. I think it is that, but I think it's also about saying to Ukraine that when it leant towards the EU, when it began its process Mm -hmm. of trying to seek membership, which was one of the factors that prompted President Putin to invade in the first place, that that was not a misplaced goal, that they they would like eventually to open their arms to Ukraine as a symbol of how important the European Union bloc is and that it is willing to open its arms to Ukraine 
new members. But yes, I think at this stage, they're, they're trying to sound as positive as possible without raising expectations too high. So they want to keep a little touch of realism in there so that people don't forget all those um, important technical issues that really, I think, would have to be resolved before, realistically, Ukraine could actually join. Well, let's move along to a somewhat related subject. And a recurrent motif of the discourse in recent years has been the de-plinthing of statues of people whose virtues, such as they may have seemed at the time, have been thought better of. This has generally, though not exclusively, gone badly for monuments to tyrants, traitors and traffickers in human beings. Contrarywise, as as ever, Russia has erected a new monument to a figure whose graven image has been cluttering scrapyards all over the former Warsaw Pact since the end of the Cold War. Joseph Stalin, a new bust of the widely unlamented maniac, has been unveiled in Volgograd to mark the 80th anniversary of Soviet victory in the battle for the city which was known at the time as Stalingrad. Um, Stephen, obviously Russia, a country you know very well and have spent a great deal of time in, before we discuss the reasons for it and the the rights and wrongs of it, is there genuinely still much love for Stalin and what he represents among Russians? It's not so much a question of still love. It's a question of it's come and gone. It's, um, of course, the, the, the city of Stalingrad, which had been named after him, originally called Tsaritsyn, um, which has nothing to do with the Tsar, actually. That means yellow sands in, in mm. uh, Mongol Tatar. Um, uh, and that was it was renamed in 61 after Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, the then Soviet leader, had revealed much of Stalin's crimes against humanity in the Soviet Union. Um, and so it was thought not a good thing to have a city named after him. And so it became Volgograd because it's on the river Volga. It's Volgograd, but anyway. Um, and since then, there's been there's been this undercurrent of people and some in the city and, and some elsewhere um, who still revere Stalin, one of whom, of course, happens to be Vladimir Putin. Mm. Um, and so there's been moves back and forth. And it, there's even more extraordinary in some ways than renaming it. A few years ago, they passed a law saying that on eight days of the year, this being one of them, the anniversary of the uh, victory in the Battle of Stalingrad, 9th of May, the victory in the war, another one. On eight days of the year, the city can be called Stalingrad even though it's really called Volgograd. Um, so eight, eight down, 357 <laughs> to go. Absolutely, yes, good maths. Um, and so it will be very controversial for some people, but I think looking at the way Russian society is behaving at the moment and how how many people have bowed their heads before what, what Putin is saying, if it were to be pushed through... You can't demonstrate. It's it's illegal to demonstrate in Russia. Even one person going out mm. with a, with a piece of paper is is an illegal demonstration. So, an awful lot of people would shrug their shoulders and say, oh, "Well, okay." I mean, Carol, do you get a sense? And it's it it has been suggested that Putin is trying to pitch himself as sort of a second coming of Stalin. But that's that's quite a high risk manoeuvre if you end up losing. Look, this is part of Putin's warped mindset and narrative 
through which he is justifying the invasion in Ukraine. He keeps talking about the Nazi forces in Ukraine. and uh, He has just today been talking about German tanks being dispatched in Russia's direction, which is a somewhat, I would venture to suggest, ingenuous analysis of what is occurring. Indeed, uh, a warped narrative. He keeps talking about how he is taking on the Nazi forces and he does like to compare himself to Stalin's achievements uh, in, of course, that historic victory at Stalingrad, overlooking the fact that Stalin did, of course, uh, kill at least 20 million of his own people. And what I find really quite profoundly depressing, Andrew, is I worked and covered a, a lot of the breakup of the former Soviet Union back in the 1990s. And I remember watching down, watching some of those statues of the Soviet era being torn down, the statue mm-hmm. of Zhezhinsky, who was the founder of the, the FSB, the Secret Service, in the middle of Moscow. And the joy and the jubilation and the optimism of the people who felt that they were getting their freedoms back. And when you now hear, as Stephen has said, about the repression there, the fact that you can be chucked in jail for holding up a piece of white paper, uh, there was um, a, a student who found herself hauled off to the police station and held for weeks because she'd painted her fingernails blue and yellow in solidarity for Ukraine. Fifteen years in prison if you speak out against the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I just think back to those heady days and the extraordinary optimism. You know, Mm. people literally crying with joy on the streets. And the way Putin has ripped that away, I think, is just so profoundly depressing. And of course, we always think, rightly, of the terrible suffering of the people in Ukraine. But many people in Russia are suffering as well. Coming back to to plugging the the book I've just translated, that's <laughs> War in Russia, because there's a, there's a passage in there where Sergei Medvedev compares Putin. He said at times Putin compares himself to Stalin in the, the, the white military tunic. There's a very famous photo of, of Stalin um, looking at the map, wearing a white military mm. tunic. He said at times he sees himself like that. At other times he sees himself like Alexander I at the, uh, uh, at the Treaty of Versailles um, back in 1815. Uh, and, uh, and, and so he, you know, he, there's this... On the one hand, he sees himself as Stalin and sees himself as recreating something of the Soviet Union. But on the other hand, he's the Russian Tsar. He's, mm. an, he's an emperor again. He's, he's creating another empire. So he's got both these ideas in his mind. I, I just want to follow up just finally and quickly on this, Stephen, that uh, is there a slightly sympathetic way to look at the, the sentimentally sentimentalization uh, of Stalin. Because I, I've had this conversation with other historians of Russia and with many other Russians who do make the point that the West, at least as Russia sees it, doesn't entirely appreciate either the trauma of what Russians call the Great Patriotic War, in which Russia did play the decisive role in freeing Europe from fascism at absolutely astonishing human cost, but also the pride in that, because that was this great shining moment, this, you know, and they react very badly to any tarnishing of that or traducing of that. I remember, yeah, he said really pretty badly. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And but I think the bigger problem in in Russia is that you had the 
warming of relations under Gorbachev. You had more freedom under Gorbachev. Books appeared that had, had never been allowed to appear before. Um, Life and Fate, an amazing novel uh, by Vasily Grossman, mm. um, which is actually centred on the Battle of Stalingrad. And there's a, an, another volume has come to light, which actually has, comes before it, called Stalingrad. These are available here in superb translations. Um, they're available in Russia. No one is reading them because... What happened in the 90s, society had collapsed, there was so much going on. People had so much going on in their lives, they really didn't think about maybe we should rethink our history and, and particularly what the position of Stalin. And it allowed Stalin almost to get away with it. Um, and, and, and then Putin comes along and then Putin starts to rehabilitate. So Stalin had never... Um, there was an, a, a, a playwright I interviewed once called Mikhail Shatrov who wrote a play called Dalsha, 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 Forward, 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 Further, Further, Further. And he, he, Stalin featured in that, and this was at late 80s, and he said, because Stalin's not left the stage and Stalin never did leave the stage. He went as far as the wings and Putin has brought him back. And I was just going to say very briefly, of course, the other reason why Putin is happy to praise Stalin is that Putin sees the demise of the old Soviet Union as an absolute catastrophe. And he wants to rally that sense of this greater Russia which is another part of his reason for the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Carol and Stephen, we will have more from you later in the show. But now, when German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced a massive uptick in military spending last February, just days after Russia invaded Ukraine, it was supposed to usher in a new era in German military leadership. But last month's argument over whether Germany should send tanks to Ukraine showed there's still a pretty long way to go. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak has been looking into what kind of role Berlin's allies, like the United States, actually want Germany to play in the defence and security space. It's really pretty incredible when you think about it. Just a couple generations removed from World War II, and the expectations placed on Germany today to get back into the military field, they've skyrocketed. And it's not only coming from Ukraine, but from Germany's NATO allies, including the United States, who heaped pressure on Germany to okay the delivery of Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine last week. That delivery, once completed, will mark the first time that German tanks will roll across European soil in combat since World War II. It's an image that Germany was extremely conscious of avoiding, but that's no longer front of mind among Germany's allies. I think that the United States, Great Britain, France and others have more expectations of Germany than it does for itself. This is Chris Skaluba, former principal director for European and NATO policy at the U.S. Department of Defense. Because we see an extraordinarily rich country, an economic powerhouse, clearly a leader of Europe. So I think there's been an expectation for a couple of decades now that Germany would step up to its role in the defense and security sector. Skaluba says that while the war in Kosovo back in the 1990s was a sort of test run for Germany, it's really with the war in Afghanistan, Germany's first mission outside of Europe, where those expectations really started to take shape. And there were, you know, frustrations sometimes that the US, the Brits, some of the Baltic states, the Norwegians, the Danes were doing the, the dangerous work. They were in the front lines, you know, where, where things were difficult. And, and Germany was up in RC North, which is a little bit calmer. It, but I think over time, 
people began to really appreciate the German contribution. You know, they, they never wavered. They were there in significant numbers. And for anyone who knows a little bit of German history, being out of area for that long in support of a mission that probably didn't really affect its national interests showed that Germany was a, a true and loyal ally, even if it had its limitations. Now, while Afghanistan marked Germany's first serious post-war engagement, it pales in comparison to what's being expected of Germany today. Ever since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there's been a sense that Germany can no longer sit on the sidelines. And that's been a pretty rude awakening for Germany itself. Germany's attitude pretty much until February was there wouldn't be a war if Germany was not a part of it. Now, given 1914 and 1939, there's some historical truth to that supposition, but just because Germany has learned that lesson doesn't mean that every other bad guy has. This is Christina Betzina with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And so something that they thought really would not be necessary, which is to have a military and to use a military to try to defend its values, turned out to be necessary. In many ways, Germany is really the victim of its own post-war success. Germany's economy flourished into the strongest in Europe, leading to accusations of freeloading when it spends less than other countries on defense. But what's also striking is this perception abroad that its ability to root out Nazism has been so successful that while Germans still fret about their past constantly, it's really just an afterthought for people outside the country, including Ukrainians. I think all of this, whatever suspicions people once had about Germany returning to be one of the major players, including militarily, you know, in Europe, they are all well in the past. But right now, of course, we understand that they are on our side. Uh, they're helping us against Russia. So therefore, we need as much assistance as we can to get from them. This is Volodymyr Dubovik, director of the Center for International Studies at Odessa Meknikov National University in Ukraine. And that's what really annoys us, that Germans couldn't just uh, learn a basic lesson of history. If you're talking about reservations, about sending tanks with German crosses on them against Russia, because you feel like you once uh, really wronged Russia in a dramatic way, you also wronged Belarus, you also wronged Lithuania, you also wronged Ukraine and Moldova. Just an example of my own family, how many people on both of my father's mother's uh, side were injured or killed or died during the war. And none of them was Russian and none of them was actually living in Russia. So if Germany should really think hard again about uh, this, that uh, Russia is basically today's Nazi Germany. What's also striking about this is the fact that everyone sees so much potential in Germany as a military power, despite the fact that its Bundeswehr is widely considered under-equipped. These expectations stem from a combination of Germany's economic might, but also from things like its penchant for precision planning and its ability to make things when it sets its mind to it. Here's Christina Betzina again. Throwing money at the problem, I think, would be a great place to start. So can Germany make enough of something? They're excellent engineers. They can build stuff. It's pretty good. Their you know, air defense system that was first used in Ukraine, the Iris-T, is excellent. It's like the Mercedes of air defense systems. Everyone should have one. And so it's really first a question of money. No one's yet saying, oh, Germany really needs to have an X number of standing army. But investing in the stuff they do well for the purpose of defense so other people can use it and that for Ukrainians to stop dying, that's, you know, that's a pretty standard ask. If there is an aspiration 
that Germany can take on a major military role and leave the past in the past. There is also a recognition here in the United States that it's going to need some nudging from allies. At the end of the day, this is what explains why US President Joe Biden agreed to send his own tanks to Ukraine along with Germany last week. In a way, it wasn't even just about Ukraine. Here's Chris Skaluba again. But I think there's a strategic element to this. It's like, hey, this is the next evolution in getting Germany to the security and defense powerhouse that we want and expect it to be. So if it's going to take 31 Abrams tanks to get them to send how many Leopards, then let's do that. It's the right thing to do for Ukraine, but it's also that next step for Germany on this path that we were talking about from the Balkans to Afghanistan and, and, now, and now in Ukraine. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Chermak. Thank you, Chris. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Time to rejoin our panel now, Stephen Deal and Carol Walker. And let's look at the politics of the United Kingdom. Traditional pause for British listeners of sensitive disposition to run away to sea under an assumed name. Today sees Prime Minister, as of this broadcast, Rishi Sunak, note 100 days in 10 Downing Street, much of which he has doubtless spent incredulous that anyone really lives in houses this small. But in the current chaotic context, it is an accomplishment of sorts. Not only has Sunak more than doubled the tenure of his immediate predecessor, Liz Truss, come on, you remember, but he is less than three weeks from overhauling George Canning's stint and can then start bearing down on the Viscount Godrich. A uh, hundred days, Carol Walker. How would you say it's going? Well, I think, as you mentioned there, slightly better than those 49 days of his direct predecessor, Liz Truss. A low bar. A low bar. He uh, had one immediate task, which was to try to stabilise the financial markets and a political class in absolute turmoil. And I think on that, you can say that he has certainly made a bit of progress. Um, But he is still absolutely beset with problems. Calming things down Mm. is not really enough when you're governing the country. And we've got new polling out today, which suggests that something around 70% of voters think he's doing pretty badly when it comes to the economy. Inflation's still well over 10%. Interest rates have gone up uh, again today. The NHS, uh, some people are talking about a crisis, long queues of ambulances outside some hospitals, uh, nurses and ambulance staff staging another strike next week. Uh, The industrial action, we've had the biggest day of industrial action uh, on a single day for more than a decade yesterday, which brought trains to a halt, many schools closed. Um, And even the migrant problem of the numbers of people coming across the channel on small boats, which Rishi Sunak has claimed as one of his priorities. Most people think he's doing pretty badly on that. He's announced a whole series of new plans, but there's still tens of thousands of people coming uh, across. Uh, 
So he's struggling and uh, he's got a restive party and uh, the polls show that he's well behind um, his main challenger, the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, Stephen, low bar, obviously, but Rishi Sunak's whole pitch, and it was his pitch basically when he first ran uh, for leader and was defeated by Liz Truss, but his whole pitch, especially in this circumstance, was I'm not an ideologically deranged headbanger or an obvious halfwit. Now, again, the qualifications for the office of Prime Minister and First Lord of the Treasury should be more stringent than that. But has it actually been important for Britain, especially on the world stage, to at least be able to claim that much? I don't think it's even that. I mean, the, the, he made this uh, this speech before he walked into Downing Street for the first time um, as Prime Minister, where he talked about integrity. And then suddenly, you know, you've got... Uh, you've got um, and there's, there's three there's three sort of big disasters. He got rid of Gavin Williamson, which was probably a good thing because no one liked Gavin, Gavin Williamson. I was going to say, anyway. it's a strange definition was, of disaster you're but, working off there. But, <laughs> OK, but it's building up. And then, but then, I mean, um, Nazim Dahawi, the, who, when he was Chancellor... So the man responsible for for, for taxation and all the, the, the finance he, of the country... He was chancellor for about he, 15 minutes. He was fine. Yeah, but in those 15 minutes, he then decided <laughs> he would actually pay a £5 million um, uh, back tax to, uh, to, to HMRC, to, to, the, to the tax authorities, um, which he hadn't really declared. And in fact, he'd, he'd, he'd talked about people smearing him by saying that he owed this money and, and in fact had to pay a fine as well. Uh, um, who among us has not forgotten to pay the odd £5 million quid? To, well, to the inland I know. I, I, well, and obviously Could that's what to Rishi anybody. thought. That's what Rishi thought. Cause, you know, that's five million pounds. Probably keeps that in his wallet. Um, I, I mean, it's just, it just it goes on and on. Um, uh, Dominic Raab, his his deputy, is now being accused more, by more and more civil servants of bullying them. And it, this, this is going to be the next. You know, he he's still beset by these problems. It's not just it. It's, it's the Conservative Party. They have outlived their usefulness. They've well, been there twelve years. And and but my prediction, I'd be interested by the. Carol thinks it's complete nonsense. But the next election is due in, at the end of 2024. I think it's got to come this year, surely. I think the Conservatives will do everything they possibly can to avoid an election they, they this year. Were, they would, you would need a, a screwdriver to prise their fingernails out of the door. Turkeys frame, and think. voting yeah. for Christmas um, springs to mind. I think they will do everything they can to avoid it. But I think certainly, as Stephen points out, those tide of allegations, the latest Dominic Raab um, facing new claims every uh, night, it seems, uh, of bullying against senior civil servants and junior civil servants, just the latest problem. And he's finding it very difficult, Rishi Sunak, to just get his head above water and say, look, this is what I'm doing. He did at the beginning of this week come up with a plan to try to reduce some of the waiting times in the NHS, trying to show that he has got at least some policies to try to tackle that. But uh, the announcement of it was completely overwhelmed by the fact that he had to sack his party chairman, Nadim Zahawi, who'd forgotten to pay those millions of pounds in tax. Um, Carol, I just wanted to follow up uh, with you as a, a professional observer of Westminster. We, we've made it clear that you know, Rishi Sunak has been... <laughs> He's been dealt a lousy hand. This is a bad point to have to start attempting to govern a country and attempting to establish your premiership. But do you detect any actual underpinning governing philosophy he would like to implement if he could? Is is there any sign of a Sunakism? 
Well, look, they had a, a an away day of senior ministers last week and they had a presentation from one of their uh, polling and campaign supremos, Isaac Levido, who points out that there is, as he described it, a, a narrow path to victory. I think it's probably <laughs> a bit more like a tightrope, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I think the, the first priority is trying to get inflation under control because when you've got... Uh, Inflation at over 10% and a lot of basic foodstuffs going up even faster than that. That is what is underlying all the industrial unrest. Uh, many groups of workers whose wages are not keeping, price, uh, keeping up with the price rises that they're having to pay for their basic goods, for their energy and so on. And of course, the war in Ukraine has made that worse. What Rishi Sunak intends to do, would like to do, is to get inflation under control. Um, we're going to have a uh, a budget, a financial statement in March, which will disappoint many in his party because it won't include any tax cuts of any size. And then be seen to be making progress on those issues that I outlined in terms of um, the health service, getting that working a bit better, trying to resolve these disputes, uh, trying to show a little bit of integrity and stable government. And he is somebody who gets to grips with the details of the policy, not something that uh, was a particular trait of either of his two predecessors, Liz Truss or Boris Johnson. And the hope might be that then in a year from now, when we get to 2024, he could start to show that he's ridden out the worst of this storm, put the path, put the country on a more stable footing, and that that might give the Conservatives a chance. But yeah, that's a very narrow path. Uh, my public service announcement before we move on to our final subject is that you can still get eight and a half to one on the Tories being led into the next election by Boris Johnson, which I for one think is absolutely outstanding value. Uh, but finally, last September's passing of the crown of the United Kingdom from Elizabeth II to Charles III occasioned a widespread redrawing of no end of official iconography in the UK and in the Commonwealth realms where Britain's monarch is also the local head of state. Australia however, will not be updating its banknotes. Australia's current $5 bill is adorned by the late Queen. The new one will not feature the new King. Instead, there will be a design honouring Indigenous Australians, at which point this Australian will ask the two loyal British subjects uh, sitting at this table, how outraged are you by this treachery? I'm not outraged at all, to be honest. I, I, I'm not surprised. I, I feel this has been coming for a while. Um, I feel actually we should turn this on its head and we, we should be interviewing you as the, as the Australian here and as the, you've just come back from Australia. I have. I'm sure every day you were talking to people, you know, who should we have on the, on the new £5 note? Uh, $5, $5, $5, $5 note, do you mind? We, we, got rid of, we got rid of the pounds circa 19... I thought I'd slip that in. We I got rid of the pounds, know. I think, 1966, if memory serves. Our Prime Minister at the time, the extremely Anglophile Sir Robert Menzies actually wanted to call Australia's unit of currency the royal. Uh, mercifully, uh, he, he, he was overruled. Um, I think there is some suggestion here that Australia doesn't want to have to do this again once it becomes a republic, although it is worth noting that uh, Charles will appear on Australia's coins. 
I'm uh, amazed that there's always still so much of a debate about these things. As somebody who stopped using coins and notes <laughs> during the pandemic well, <laughs> and rarely even has one uh, on me when I need one. Um, but I know people do get very, very worked up about this. And and there is, of course, the symbolism of it. Look, as you, as um, Stephen was saying, you know better than us about uh, the mood in Australia. And since uh, the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II and the, the huge rows that have been engulfing our royal family uh, with Harry and Meghan um, at war with uh, Harry's oh, brother no, and his it, it, dad and everybody else. Everyone's been enjoying that tremendously, just, just, <laughs> well, just like that, people maybe here. That, that bolstered their popularity. It's probably no surprise that the Australians um, are, are moving away from that. And, uh, I mean, the, your new Prime Minister, Albanese, is a, a committed Republican, he's although that. he said he's not, gonna, he's not going to uh have another referendum on becoming a republic just yet it is interesting that there's not actually overwhelming support yet is there for a, a becoming for getting rid of the it's, royal it's, family it's, altogether it's, it's not overwhelming and i don't think it's sufficiently overwhelming that you would put it to a referendum yet bearing in mind of course that this has already been tried and blown once in reasonably recent memory and i think i, I, I think albanese's approach has been actually fairly sensible he's always been careful to say this really doesn't make the blindest amount of material difference to anybody's lives it would be a nice symbolic thing, but there's probably bigger fish to fry. I did want to ask you both just before we leave, however, because Australia does have people on its banknotes, and I'm going to read you a list of names, and I want to know how many of them either of you have ever actually heard of. Uh, they are Banjo Patterson, Mary Gilmore, Mary Raby, John Flynn, Edith Cowan, David Unipon, Nellie Melba, and John Monash. Any, any familiar, anyone you want to take a punt at there? Uh, Three names ring a bell, and then you're so quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Likewise, I'm struggling. I'm sure I know who Mary Gilmore is. Yeah, I was thinking Mary Gilmore. She yeah. was a poet. Yeah. Yeah. She, well, she, she did, in fact. It's, it's a long story. Wrote a very short verse about one of my ancestors. Oh. Yeah. Well, there we but, are. I'm impressed. I, 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 come, I, I come away from this program um, far better informed than I was. Uh, but what do you both think of the current array of non-royal British banknote stars? That is, of course, actually, that's a good pub quiz question. Four, there's four people who aren't the Queen on, or the King on British banknotes. Shakespeare? No. No? No. Hmm. Uh, didn't Florence Nightingale get in there? No, not yet. Oh. The four, well, the I, uh, four but, currents. See, this this just proves what an entirely redundant discussion it is about. Well, it just back. proves how, no, how, 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 no little I, how little I carry a note or even look at the picture <laughs> on a, it. Do I have a note in my wallet? Oh, yes, we can, <laughs> cheat. we can quickly cheat. Uh, I, I will put you and our listeners out of their misery. It is Jane Austen, Winston Churchill, Alan Turing and J.M.W. Turner. Yeah, okay. Are the, yeah. are the four non-royals on present British banknotes? Good list of names. It is. Uh, Carol Walker and Stephen Deal, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily, as Stephen rummages in his wallet. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Carol Walker and Stephen Deal. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 